Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, your host, and the clinical microbiologist and the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. For today's episode, we welcome Ben Levno from our product management team at Mayo Clinic Laboratories for a test and focus interview. Thanks for the introduction, Dr. Pritt. Today we'll be discussing the autoimmune axonal evaluation in serum with Dr. Div Dubay. But before we get started, Dr. Dubay, could you just tell us a little about your role in the lab and your background? Thanks, Ben. Thanks for inviting me to have this uh, conversation. I am a consultant in the Department of Lab Medicine and Pathology and Neurology. I did my initial medical school training back in India, then came to the U.S. to pursue residency in neurology. Following the residency in neurology, I was, uh, did fellowships in autoimmune neurology here at Mayo Clinic, which actually exposed me to the functionings of the lab and how we utilize autoantibodies for management of patients with various neurological disorders. It also opened my eyes to different techniques through which we discover these antibodies and then package them and present them as clinical tests. And subsequently, I ended up doing a fellowship in neuromuscular medicine, seeing a considerable number of these neuropathy cases, which we'll be touching on uh, in this uh, podcast. Perfect. And just in case our audience missed it, you're seeing patients, Dr. DeBay, right? And spending considerable time in the lab. So really bench to bedside, right? Yeah, it's been a privilege sort of seeing both, and, both ends of the spectrum. Half of my time I spend seeing various autoimmune neurological patients affecting diseases affecting both the central or peripheral nervous system. So many of these autoimmune neuropathies are a part of my clinic. And then on the, in the remaining 50% of my time, I spend in the lab developing these tests or potentially trying to discover more novel antibodies, uh, which can be offered as clinical tests at some point. Perfect. And you mentioned peripheral neuropathy in this case. We were really excited to launch this axonal evaluation back in 2020, but it was right before COVID. And as we continue to take steps forward in our phenotypic menu, we thought it was appropriate to loop back around to this test. So there was a previous test in focus that talked about some basics of the evaluation. Can you just remind the audience what this test is meant to do? Um, I think it's a very helpful test. And speaking personally from my clinical point of view, when I'm seeing patients with neuropathy, there are certain red flags which make me think about an autoimmune neurological problem. And in that scenario, when the patient has neuropathy, what I'm looking for is a test which provides answers to the questions I'm asking and does not necessarily develop new questions based on the results. And that's where this test comes in handy. All the antibodies included in this panel are of significant relevance to patients with neuropathy. They not only provide information about the underlying etiology of neuropathy, they also point us towards if there's an underlying cancer we should be searching for. They help us with having discussions with the patients about the natural history of disease, coming up with the best treatment regimen. And what we are trying to incorporate in these panels is a comprehensive phenotype-specific approach. So when you're seeing the patient, examining the patient, you have a particular phenotype in your mind, which is the predominant phenotype. And we are asking the physicians to utilize that in selecting the panel they should be ordering. On top of that, I use the word comprehensive because we want to make sure that we are covering all the relevant antibodies. 
And as time goes by, this our, our, the spectrum of these antibodies will continue to grow because we'll validate newer tests, which would be added, we'll discover newer antibodies which would be added. But even right now, rather than ordering just one single antibody, we are incorporating a panel of antibodies which are of relevance in patients presenting with exonal neuropathy. This comprehensive phenotype-specific approach is not just limited to patients with neuropathy. We are recommending a similar approach for most of our other autoimmune presentations. Like movement disorder, we have a specific movement disorder panel. Patients with epilepsy or encephalopathy, we have dedicated panels for that. So over time, what we are doing is we are moving away from this neoplastic panel, which was not necessarily based on the clinical assessment of the physician or neurologist who's seeing the patient, but focused on cancers and high-risk antibodies associated with cancers. That's great. You touched on so many important things there, Dr. Dubey. I want to get to some of those red flags that you alluded to that lead you to ordering this particular test, but I just want to capture that Mayo Clinic approach to phenotype-specific evaluations. I think traditionally, a lot of physicians have thought about autoimmune neurology, I just want to test for all the antibodies, right? One test that captures all the antibodies, but you mentioned that that's no longer appropriate because the spectrum of antibodies continues to evolve. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit and why we think it's not appropriate to search for a catch-all type of evaluation? That's an extremely important point. As you said, not just the association of these antibodies with individual phenotypes, is continuing to evolve, just the number of antibodies themselves are just exponentially increasing. So even in the last year, there have been multiple new autoantibodies which have been discovered. And each of these antibodies, if you look through publications, have a specific predominant presentation. So over time, what we are doing, we are adapting our evaluations to the growing knowledge or growing science behind antibody reporting, antibody discovery, and utilization of these antibodies. So each of our panels focusing on focuses on antibodies which have association with one particular phenotype. And we try to be comprehensive to make sure that if a patient is presenting with one particular syndrome or one particular predominant neurological phenotype, we are trying to cover all potential autoantibodies, paraneoplastic or autoimmune in those panels. So when the patient has, for example, ataxia or a movement disorder, and somebody orders an autoimmune movement disorder panel, all relevant antibodies for that particular panel would be covered. What this also helps with, not just sort of providing this comprehensive approach, it also rules out to some extent non-relevant results. So certain antibodies, such as, let's give an example of N-type calcium channel or PQ-type calcium channel, Sometimes we do come across low titer cases, which when, you, when detected can lead to various rabbit holes and unnecessary testing if the clinical symptomatology or clinical phenotype for which it is being ordered is not appropriate. So by limiting to the antibodies which are of relevance, we are also preventing these unnecessary workups, unnecessary immunotherapy trials in some of these patients. This also helps us bring down the costs of these tests. And most importantly, it allows us to have a rapid turnaround time because we're not necessarily testing for antibodies which are not useful for the patient and delaying the results of these panels. Great. 
Yeah, I've heard you say before, I, I mean, those three key areas, we're reducing costs with this approach, we're reducing turnaround time, and we're increasing specificity. So moving into those red flags, Dr. DeBay, can you paint the picture a little more specifically? This is a patient that's been diagnosed with a neuropathy. What are the red flags that would point to this axonal evaluation being appropriate as a next step? No, thanks, Ben. I think that's a very important question because neuropathies are very common. In our neurology practice, we see a lot of neuropathy. As people age, we have seen that the frequency of neuropathy, especially those of sort of length-dependent neuropathies, continue to grow up. Some of these neuropathies we are catching in these autoimmune exonal neuropathy evals are also associated with sort of older patients, some of them with underlying cancers. So having a clinical impression when you're seeing the patient and subdividing the patients based on their neuropathy phenotype is extremely crucial to prevent unnecessary test ordering. In my clinical practice, when I'm seeing a neuropathy patient, the things I'm looking for is firstly the onset of neuropathy. When did it start? How did it start? Was it symmetric or asymmetric at the time of onset? Did the patient have pain associated with neuropathy or was it mostly numbness or just motor weakness? Because that helps me segregate these neuropathies into various brackets and helps me think about the potential differential even before I order the test. The other important point is the progression of neuropathy. If it's a chronic, slowly progressive neuropathy over many, many years, that the, it's very unlikely that it's gonna turn out to be a classic paraneoplastic neuropathy. Those neuropathies are much more subacute. They present more aggressively and usually has sort of had that asymmetric pattern like I was talking about. Going further beyond pain, asymmetry, subacute progression, the EMG is extremely crucial in subdividing these neuropathies because based on clinical presentation and based on EMG, we can further subdivide neuropathies into various neuropathy phenotypes. An example being sensory ganglionopathy, which is one of the classic paraneoplastic neuropathy phenotypes. Many of the antibodies we are testing in this panel, like ANA1 or anti-Q, anti-CRIMP5, anti-CV2, anti-amphifysin, all of these are of significant relevance for the sensory ganglionopathy or sensory neuropathy phenotype. The other phenotype which the EMG can help us narrow down is asymmetric polyradiculoneuropathy, which in our paper in neurology a few years ago, we've reported that CRIMP5 is one of the antibodies which predominantly presents with this asymmetric polyradiculoneuropathy phenotype. So this initial neurological assessment and EMG assessment and that initial workup when you're seeing the patient can refine uh, identification of patients in whom we'll be sending these uh, tests on. Right, that sounds like it makes a really good logical sense and should reduce confusion for physicians, but Mayo Clinic is the first one to offer testing in this approach. So can you speak to a little bit the traditional approach of motor, sensory, and just make it clear to our physicians that there shouldn't be multiple tests ordered, right? If we order based on axonal or demyelinating, we don't have to complement that testing with another motor sensory panel. Is, am I understanding it correctly? Uh, that is correct, and especially in certain, certain scenarios. The reason why we moved away from just purely sensory, purely motor, 
is majority of the patients I'm seeing in my neurology clinic or in my peripheral neuropathy clinic don't have isolated sensory or isolated motor presentations. Even the sensory ganglionopathies, if you actually review carefully for the perineoplastic sensory neuropathies, which we are sort of testing for in this panel, can have some motor spillover. So if we just say a sensory neuropathy panel, many people might miss or not order that panel if the patient has any motor features. Similarly, pure motor neuropathies are extremely rare. There are exceptions. So recently we discovered a new antibody called as leucine zipper 4, which we are active, we'll be working on validating and putting into certain evaluations, which was associated with pure motor neuropathy or pure polyradicular neuropathy without any sensory features. Options of those particular presentations are extremely rare. Most of the presentations when we are seeing in clinic have both sensory and motor features. And that's where clinical assessment, neurological examination, phenotypic division based on that, and the EMG findings are extremely crucial because the EMG can help you distinguish between exonal and demyelinating neuropathy. So exonal being, if you think of your nerves like copper wires, it's the wiring inside the copper wire which is being damaged, whereas demyelination means more the insulation of the copper wire being damaged. And this information is crucial in dividing the antibody evaluations. Demyelinating neuropathies, which we are actively working on and now starting to offer certain tests like Neurofashion 155, MAG-IgM, these are the antibodies which are of relevance in demyelinating neuropathies. Whereas exonal neuropathies, one should order this particular panel because we are trying to cover most antibodies which are associated with exonal damage to the exons of the peripheral nerves. Right. And you touched on it a little bit, how our menu is still not quite complete. And we acknowledge that EMGs aren't always the easiest to access. Some of our physicians don't have experienced quarters or they won't have access to that kind of testing. So can you speak to what is still remaining to round out our neuropathy menu? Eventually, we'll have a comprehensive evaluation in those cases where the EMG results are also a little unclear, right? Yep. No, I think that's a very relevant point. Not just EMGs are difficult to obtain in certain institutions or certain programs in the periphery, but sometimes interpretations can change as sort of EMGs are repeated because it's very operator dependent. So to provide a more comprehensive approach, we will in the near future start offering a comprehensive neuropathy panel, focusing or highlighting or including antibodies with very high level of clinical specificity. In our attempt to do that, what we are trying to include traditional antibodies such as contactin-1, which is undergoing validation right now, GQ1B, which is another antibody of relevance for demyelinating neuropathies. And as these additional antibodies are brought to our lab and are offered as clinical tests, we'll come up with this comprehensive neuropathy panel, which will include all these exonal and demyelinating neuropathies. Once again, highlighting that before we, these antibodies are offered, we want them to go through a very thorough and rigorous validation. So we are not generating a lot of false positive results and then only offering the ones which we think are gonna help clinicians make certain clinical decisions in terms of managing the patient or instituting appropriate treatments for the patient. Great, thanks Dr. Dubey. I think I just wanna wrap up with 
a little bit of a comparison to the testing that you mentioned, uh, pernioplastic or PAVL. Right now, a lot of our physicians are probably using that well-known, established test. Do you think that physicians can replace PAVL with the axonal evaluation in every case? Or are there still some times when PAVL or the pernioplastic evaluation that we've historically offered is more appropriate? When I'm seeing axonal neuropathy, I'm never ordering PAVL. I'm only ordering axonal neuropathy evaluations. However, when I'm seeing patients who have other presentations, such as axonal neuropathy and encephalitis, with encephalitis being the predominant feature, or patients with cerebellar ataxia with polyradicular neuropathy because of a multifocal presentation, with ataxia being the predominant feature, I'm sort of looking at these other panels which are offered, the encephalitis panel, the movement disorder panel, as potential panels to offer. In my clinical practice, the use of PAVL has gone down significantly, next to zero, because we have all these different phenotype-specific evaluations which can be offered and which can be tested on most of these patients. And they're really all an improvement upon the perineoplastic evaluation. Can you speak to how axonal has taken a lot of the same antibodies, but improve the testing based upon methodology and specificity? What are some of the key changes that we made for axonal, sir? So one of the important changes we made was inclusion of LGI-1 and Casper-2 antibodies in this panel, which was reflects from presence of voltage-gated potassium channel antibody in PAVL or perineoplastic evaluation. This is a critical change because close to 90% don't necessarily have LGI-1 and Casper-2 antibodies. And those which are double negative for LGI-1 and Casper-2, in our clinical experience, don't have an underlying autoimmune neurological disorder. And many patients in our clinical practice have been unnecessarily treated with immunotherapy just purely based on the BGKC result. So to take away this confusion, we just removed voltage-gated potassium channel antibody altogether from our evaluation for axonal neuropathies and focused on LGI-1 and Casper-2, which are two cell surface antibodies associated with neuromyotonia or peripheral nerve hyperexcitability disorder, and in some cases associated with neuropathic pain or small fiber neuropathies. The other testing, which is sort of included in our evaluation is inclusion of CRIMP-5 antibodies uh, testing in the form of tissue IFA as well as Western blood. CRIMP-5 is a very important antibody as a part of our evaluation because a significant proportion of perineoplastic axonal neuropathies are positive for CRIMP-5. So we don't want to miss any of these cases. So we, we've not only included the high specificity tissue immunofluorescence assay, we've also included CRIMP-5 Western blot, which can pick up some of the low titer cases. And then uh, as we were speaking a few minutes ago, We've tried to discard or remove all potential antibodies which can confuse our physicians. So in our autoimmune neurology or peripheral nerve clinic, we not only see patients who have autoimmune neurological disorders, we also get referral from all throughout the world about these patients who have antibodies positive, but don't necessarily have a clinical phenotype suggestive of an autoimmune neurological syndrome. And then the local physicians are confused what to do in this scenario. And to reduce this confusion, we've taken away some of these antibodies. Some examples are striational antibodies, which over time we have realized don't necessarily have specificity for any particular neurological phenotype. 
So that's why it's been removed. Another example being alpha-3 ganglionic, which is not necessarily associated with an exonal peripheral neuropathy. It has association with autonomic or dysautonomic dysautonomia, but not necessarily relevant for this particular evaluation. Therefore, this, that has been removed as well. So we've tried to keep the evaluation comprehensive, specifically in relation to exonal neuropathies, but we've tried to keep it specific as well. We don't want to include unnecessary antibody evaluations, which will end up confusing the managing physicians. It sounds like a really big step forward for physicians and patients, really big step forward in our transition to this phenotype-specific approach, getting away from that catch-all traditional perineoplastic approach. What are you most excited about, and what do you want physicians to take away with the promotion of this axonal autoimmune evaluation? In terms of the present, I'm very excited about the tests we are offering. We are sticking to tests which have a very high clinical specificity. So reducing unnecessary false positive diagnosis because in autoimmune neurology practice, false positive does much more harm than a potential false negative case. So we want to focus and make sure that our tests have a very high clinical specificity at the same time, not necessarily compromising on the positive predictive value or the sensitivity of the test. In terms of the future, I'm very excited about the things which are in the pipeline. Neurofashion just went live. MAG-IGM just went live. The other things which are coming on are contact in GQ1B. And all these antibodies would allow us to provide this comprehensive antibody evaluation for patients where people can actually get answers for these asymmetric or symmetric subacute progressive neuropathy patients they are seeing. And then I'm also excited about things which are undiscovered. Majority of perineoplastic antibodies don't have biomarkers. Of perineoplastic neuropathies don't have antibody biomarkers. And that's one of the focuses of our lab is to do discovery, find new biomarkers. Even CIDPs, only 20 to 25%, depending upon the study you read, have underlying serological biomarkers. So that re remaining 75% is still an area for discovery. So I'm very much excited that hopefully in the near future, we'll be able to discover and bring out new biomarkers, which could then be validated and included in our panels. Lots to be excited about, but still lots of work to do. So certainly won't be the last time that we sit down with you, I'm sure, Dr. DeBay. Thanks for spending this time with us today, helping us better understand the autoimmune axonal evaluation. Have a great day. Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.